Let's pray. Father, as um, Craig has already prayed, may we have soft hearts to hear your word today. And Father, may those hearts be receptive. And our Lord, you do your work in us so that you shape us and mould us and make us to be the people that you want us to be. That you equip us and you set our feet on a path, our Lord, which will bring honour and glory to you. For our Lord, as we realise that we are your image bearers, so our Lord God, we want to fulfil that task and do things which adorn your great name. For we pray this in you, Jesus. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, one of the children asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Ah, oh, that you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's our king. In our human thinking about God, we want God to be safe. We want, we want that model of God that's got all the airbags. We, we, we want that, that domesticated God that's never really going to be a threat to us. And we can overemphasise his amazing love in the hope that it somehow drowns out the fact that God will come in judgement or that it drowns out his righteous wrath that is always set against sin or the reality that, that God is a jealous God who will guard his reputation and his glory. Yet the truth of God's word declares to us that we must worship God with reverence and with awe. We must live our lives here as strangers in, in reverential awe, as we saw from 1 Peter yesterday. And so it is in Hebrews chapter 12, we've got this incredible verse, that we are to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's a scary thought. Our God is not, in that sense, a safe God. Yet, he is a good God. And that's where we want to go today. That's what I want to create for us. I want to create this linkage between God's goodness and a proper, healthy, God-honouring fear of the Lord. For grasping that connection will, will help you not just understand something of the fear of the Lord in, in the head, but I trust will help move you towards that, that realisation and that actualisation that living in the fear of the Lord is a real delight, is a joy, is a treasure worth seeking and grabbing hold of and keeping. Let's turn back for a moment back to the Psalms. Back in Psalm 112, the first verse says this, it says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. You know, think about the way your mind works. Because if it works anything like mine, I see a verse like that and I say to myself, ah, that's right, blessed is the man who fears the Lord who finds great delight in his commands. 
I sort of jump this part here. But what he's actually doing, he's not saying there are two categories of people who are blessed. There's not, a, there's not a person who's blessed who fears the Lord on that side. And there's also a category of people over this side who fear the Lord, who, sorry, who are blessed, who find great delight in his commands. And if I had a choice between those two categories, I know which one I'd go for. Uh-uh. doesn't give us that option. This is a both-togetherness. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who in that fearing finds great delight in his commands. They nest together. Similarly, we see uh, the, the other verse, sorry, at the end. Psalm 128. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. So, you know, it's almost like there's, there's an internal definition going on here. What does it mean to fear the Lord in terms of that psalm? Well, to walk in his ways. You know, and that's the same as taking great delight in his commands. It moves forward. And there's this sense of surprise, I think, to us when we realise that there is blessing in fearing the Lord. And to be blessed by God is not something to be sneezed at, if you'll pardon the pun. Oh, they didn't even get the pun. Oh, gosh. Oh, it's Sunday morning, I know. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's slack. Okay. Do you remember um, Kerry Packer's helicopter pilot? That, that bloke who saved the, uh, the media baron's life one time by donating one of his own kidneys in order that his boss could have a transplant and live. Um, helped him out for a few years, but in the end, you know, hey, you know. Well, just think you're, that, you're, you're Kerry Packer's helicopter pilot, you know. Imagine for the years afterwards what it would have been like for you still to be employed by Kerry Packer. You would have continued to enjoy the favour of Australia's richest man, wouldn't have you? Think about the debt that he owed you. You know, you couldn't wait to rip open your Christmas bonus <laughs> every week. <laughs> you know, or, or, you, or you just sort of say to the boss, hey, listen, you know, you know I've always dreamed of caddying for Greg Norman at the at, you know, Royal Melbourne, you know, and it sort of it just happened. Or you'd sort of say, oh, yeah, look, you mind if I have two weeks off, boss? You know, I've, I've got to spend the time painting the house, you know, hey. <laughs> you know, it'd be like having your own personal genie in your pocket. Yet for all of Kerry Packer's wealth and for all of his indebtedness to you for what you've done, the Packer fortunes couldn't do some things for you. They wouldn't be able to buy you good health if you'd fallen under the, under the suffering of some incurable disease. He wouldn't be able to bring you happiness if you and your spouse had grown cold in your love towards each other. He couldn't comfort your aching soul when your teenager becomes a road statistic. You see, regardless of his millions, regardless of Kerry's media influence that he had or his political clout, there's always a boundary. There's always a limitation with us as finite beings. Kerry might have wanted to bless this bloke, but within his own limitations. But not so with the Lord. His blessings have no boundaries. With God, nothing is impossible. And so out of his limitless riches, his boundless love, he blesses. He blesses those who fear him. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is full of the, the sort of blessing type things, the Beatitudes as we know them. Yeah? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who fear God. Oops, that's not in the Beatitudes, but it's in the Bible. But it's the same concept. We love the Beatitudes. 
but we sort of feel uneasy about blessed are those who fear the Lord. Blessing and fearing the Lord are connected. God is good and blessings are the expression toward us of his goodness. So how does God bless us? How does he provide for us his blessings? How is he good to those who fear him? Well, Psalm 34 gives us some clues. There in verses 9 and 10 it says this, Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions, okay? We've seen lots of stuff about lions in the last couple of days. Think about that. The lions in all of their mm, rawness and you know, king of the beast stuff. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Okay? And again, see the parallelism that's going on here. Those who fear him lack nothing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Okay? Fearing the Lord, seeking the Lord, they're linked together. And that's also then can be backed up in other places as well. I don't think that's Psalm 34. I've got the same reference there twice. It's not. It's Psalm 111, verse 5, actually. And it actually says in that verse that God provides food for those who fear him. It's a very, very specific statement, isn't it? Well, since we're talking about food, cop this dude. This is a French chef who has already held in his immaculate career six Guinness World Records for the world's largest barbecues. Okay, cop that. Okay, that's pretty impressive. And, of course, you'd realise that that, of course, is 550 kilograms of barbecued camel. Okay, he was doing that world record in Morocco. I think his biggest one so far has been a 996 roasted bison. <laughs> Don't know what you feed with it, but anyway, you know. World's largest barbecues. But the greatest barbecue in the only book that matters is in our book, the Scriptures. What's the greatest barbecue in the Scriptures? Oh, come on, you know. Haven't you, haven't you wandered them through kings yet, you know? Uh, haven't you been with Elijah on Mount Carmel? Haven't you been up there where Elijah stood against all the false prophets of Baal? And, and you know, hey, you know, you guys, you build your altar and I'll build my altar and the God who sends fire from heaven, that God is God. You know, and they build their altar over there and they all, you know, sing and dance and cut themselves and do all sorts of things. They fall down exhausted. And guess what? Nothing. You know, Elijah builds his altar, shoves the great beast on top of it. You know, not only shoves the beast on top of it, then gets him to pour buckets of water over the top of it on the top of Mount Carmel in the middle of a drought. That's a very interesting exercise. And he prays to God and consuming fire from heaven, not just, you know, toasts the beast, but vaporizes the water, the vessel blocks, everything. Our God is a consuming fire. The greatest barbecue that ever happened was there. But it wasn't the only barbecue. It wasn't the only provision that came through with Elijah. There was far more to Elijah than just that bit of ash and flash. He hit the headlines in other ways too. But he also, also dealt with some very, very particular quiet situations. During that prolonged drought in the land 
There was a poor, sad, starving widow, it talks about. And it tells us the story how she went out and she began to gather some twigs together to cook a meal. And it was going to be the meal of a condemned person on death row. She wanted to sort of cook up the very last scraps she had for her and her son. And then they were going to curl up and watch each other starve to death. It is a scene of great tragedy. It is a scene that just is of pathos and just rips at your heart when you look at it. You know, there's, there's no more flour in her cupboard. There's no more food. The pantry's empty. But not just in her house, but across the whole land. Such has been God's judgment on the false prophets that these people have followed and the Baal gods have ever worshipped. This severe drought has just been devastating. And the desperation has led this poor widow into abject despair. Eat the little that's left and then, son, we die. And Elijah turns up. Elijah, God's prophet. And he comes along and in verse 17, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 17 of Kings, he says this. He says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have. And then make something for yourself and your son. I tell you what, if you were that widow, you know, you'd be sort of going, mm-hmm. Who's this crazy? You know? Was that arrogance on Elijah's part? No, it was absolute confidence. For God had promised that her flour would not be used up. He had promised that her oil would not run dry. And just as God said, the time that Elijah stayed with that widow, it's happened that way. There was always enough always enough you know who's read the magic pudding oh come on who's read the magic pudding a few more those of you who have not read the magic pudding you've got to read the magic pudding you know and not only is Australian it's going to make absolute nonsense of my illustration unless you've read the magic pudding you know? <laughs> in the magic pudding Norman Lindsay's story there's this there's this what this called this cut and come pudding no matter how many slices you take out of the pudding guess what it's always there again And so you've just got this perennial meal. It's just perpetual. It just happens. Well, you know, I think, you know, I think Norman Lindsay, you know, could have got his original idea for his script out of that story. It was the original cut and come pudding. God was providing for Elijah and now he is providing for this widow. And that to me is a living example of that particular psalm, that God provides food for those who fear him. You know, the widow was a Gentile. She wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't one of Abraham's pure bloods. Yet through faith, as little and as slim as it may have been, she heard what Elijah said and she trusted. She believed and she obeyed. A clear example of the fear of God in action. And the result? The Lord provides food for those who fear him. And what God did for that widow then... God has continued to do down through history. Ever heard of a bloke called George Mueller? Few nods of the heads. George Mueller cared for thousands and thousands of orphans in Britain in a place called Bristol back in the 18th century. 
and he cared for them out of a Christian concern and compassion. If you read George Mueller's accounts, many, many, many times there was no food available and he would simply pray and he'd have a knock on the door and he'd been told, oh, the breaker's cart has just broken a wheel down there and we can't get the bread to town, can you use it? Time and time again, money would come in that would support those orphans. You know, and you can read other missionary accounts through the last couple of centuries where God has constantly supplied exactly what's been needed and supplied only through the miraculous hand of God. You and I, do we see God's miraculous provision? Hey, we go and we buy our groceries from Aldi or Woolies or Coles or whatever else and we think nothing more of it. But God has still provided. He's provided for us in such a way that that's there and available for us. We can just sometimes be blind to seeing God's hand behind these things. God provides. He keeps his promise. Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. But it should raise in your minds a tough question. Does God always provide? Are there no starving Christians in Ethiopia, in India, in Burkina Faso? Pick a place. It's a fair question. And perhaps the fair answer is to remind ourselves what James says to those believers who see someone in need, go up to them and give them a pat on the back and say, oh, be warm and well fed and keep on walking. Perhaps the answer is that just as God provided for the widow as she provided for Elijah, so it may be that God has provided for the needs of others through us. It may not be that God's unfaithful. God is not unfaithful. But it may be that it is we who are unfaithful as stewards of the resources that God has entrusted in our hands to help those. God is good. He provides for those who live in reverential awe of him. He provides. That's one way he's good to us. Another way, he demonstrates his goodness to us by protection. A friend of Sharon some years ago had the very scary experience of driving and having her brakes fail. And as that happened, she narrowly avoided missing an oncoming truck. As Sharon and her friend chatted later about it, a comment was made about God's guardian angels. Angels watching over us. It's no urban myth. It's no religious make-believe. God directs his angels to watch over us. Psalm 34 spells this out very explicitly. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now, I know we get into, into, into strange territory here, and I don't, I don't want you to get distracted about angels. I don't want you to start wor- worrying or wondering about how many times an angel's protected you and you've not noticed it. I don't want you to start thinking about, you know, has he got a special name? What does he look like? Da-da-da-da-da, you know? You know, all that stuff's not important, you know? What I want you, though, to recognise is to rejoice, though, in the God who constantly preserves and delivers and protects. In the fear of the Lord, where do I look to for protection? I look to the Lord. You know, we just had, what, uh, two days ago? The, uh, the anniversary, the eighth anniversary of um, a particular event. Yay, yay, 9-11. Yeah, 9-11, that's right. And since that time, that whole sense of terrorism and war on terrorism has, has you know, just hit the headlines and security has uh, tightened enormously. 
And I, and I really do love Australia's big contribution to the security uh, network, you know, that, that wonderful slogan. Be alert but not alarmed, you know. Just, you know, I just, you know, that, you know, I really think that got to the heart of the matter, you know. But anyway, um, you know, for sure we need to get vigilant for bags that are out of place in railway stations and all that sort of stuff, you know. And such human measures do have a role. And yet, where ultimately is our protection? Where do we turn to for our hope in the midst of that sort of need? We turn to God. In Psalm 33. The psalm in verse 16 starts this way. It says, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance, despite all its strength. It cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. When that psalm was written, it was a very, very military-type environment. You know, how did you conquer other places? You went in there with your armies. You know, size of your army that counted. You know, the strength of your horses that counted. All that sort of stuff. And it's really easy to update that psalm for today, isn't it? You know, you know, you could say yes. You know, an armor-plated Hummer is a vain hope for deliverance. No matter how thick its plating, an Abraham tank cannot save you. You know. Where can our reliance properly be placed? Again, in the Lord, in his unfailing love towards us. He is our deliverance. He is our protection. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. He blesses us by providing for us. He blesses us by protecting us. But not only are his eyes, but also God's ears are attentive to us as well. Now, being a mere male, I have this genetic condition called selective deafness. Um, anybody else want to confess to that same defect? Good. Any wives want to confess to that defect on behalf of their husbands? Now, since my children, my kids, were, were born in the era before such modern inventions as baby monitors, I don't think they would have survived uh, without Sharon's acutely attuned hearing. You know, what mother does not hear every little gurgle what mother does not know the nuance of every little sound and be able to detect it you know for us blokes something just crying you know that's just it you know they hear they know they understand you know i'm not attentive you know i'm definitely not attentive um uh tell you a story against myself up in um i mean if i don't sharon will uh, <laughs> up in armadale the uh the the, the man's study was uh towards the front of the house and it looked out across the, the front lawn. You could see people coming up the, uh, the, the, the pathway. That was fine. And often we get people coming up, um, you know, for uh, asking things and all sorts of other bits and pieces they do. And this particular day, Sharon had uh, taken one of the kids off to preschool and the other was off in school or something or other. And our youngest, Abra, was, um, oh, gee. In your care. In my care. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> in my care. And. I was actually going to say she was still small enough to be crawling and, you know, quiet enough to be a bub and all that sort of thing. And she had quietly fallen asleep on the carpet in the lounge room. I'm a good dad. She's asleep. Why disturb her? I'll just go and do some work in the study. Which I did. I don't know how long later. Time evaporates. I saw this lady 
coming up the pathway towards the study. And I'm noticing her coming up through the window. I thought, oh, oh she's coming. She's got a baby in her arms. Thought, yeah, you know, she's obviously coming up to inquire about a baptism. <laughs> she knocks on the door. I open the door. And I thought, oh, gee, that's, that's about Abra's age. Gee, it looks like Abra. <laughs> it was. The lounge room was connected to the dining room, which was connected directly to a, to, a, to a door into the garage, and the garage door was open. Abra had woken up, and had crawled out through the garage, and the garage, well, very similar to Jeff and Carmelina's garage, it's about that far from the footpath and about that far from the road. This woman um, was driving down the road and saw this thing crawling across the road and she thought, oh, it's a little puppy with a, with a, with a, with a coat on. In Armadale, you have coats on dogs in wintertime. And as she got close, she could say, oh, no, it's not a puppy dog. <laughs> um, and promptly stopped, picked the baby up and took it to the nearest house. I am not attentive. Um, God is attentive. God protects. Abra's still here. And in sheer contrast, Psalm 145 tells us that, that the Lord... <laughs> the Lord fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries and he saves them. And I look back on that episode and I think, yeah, you know, the Lord protected our child at that point, very much so. But again, it poses for us a hard question. How does God's promised protection square with the harsh realities of life? Do not Christians die in car accidents? Are the babies of believers immune from SIDS? And again, we must submit to God's working in order that he will bring about his purposes for us, purposes that we may not always discern, in fact, very infrequently discern, that we certainly don't appreciate. We've got to think constantly about God's purposes. And if I think I were to ask you in a one-on-one over coffee, when's, when's the time in your life when you struggle the most to trust God? When is it that you really just want to shake your hand towards God and say, God, I don't know what you're doing? I think you'll say to me, it's, it's those situations of great adversary, adversity. Those situations where, you know, confusion is reigning, where you expect something to happen and it doesn't happen. What would it have been <coughs> if that car hadn't have stopped and instead... Abra had been run over. Where was God in that situation? And it's in those situations where the true God-fearing person reveals his faith, reveals his colours. For it's then that we're challenged with the reality of facing the God who's revealed for us in Romans chapter 8. You'll know the verse, verse 28, where it tells us there of the God who works all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are being called according to his purpose. Do we believe that? Do we believe 
not in our heads, but deep down in the woof and weave of our soul, that we worship and trust a God who works together everything for our good. Not just the nice things, not just the things we want to happen, but he works together even the bad things, the most tragic things, the most devastating things. That he's at work in that for our eternal good, for our spiritual welfare. That's a mystery to us. Even, even when what God is doing comes at the expense of our material or, or emotional security blankets, if it comes at the expense of our health or even our earthly life, it's only as everything else is stripped away that we can dare think that we could stand alongside the God-fearing Job and declare from the depth of our soul, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's only in our brokenness, only in our woundedness, that we dare to lustily sing with Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not bud, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, for the sovereign Lord is my strength. Provision, protection. We're all familiar with a compass, and we even probably might have an idea what to use it for. We might even have some vague notion that it's got something to do with the magnetism between the north and the south polarity of the earth. If you ask me beyond that, I have no idea how a compass works. It just does. But the main thing is that it does work. It guides us. It points us in the right direction. If we want to go north, we can just follow that and it'll take us in that way. None of us are experts either in the way that, that God guides us. But he does. And that's the main thing to remember. That in God being good to us, he is also to us a compass. Psalm 25 tells us, Who then is the man who fears the Lord? God will instruct him in the way chosen for him. Jeff mentioned before about the concept of the will of God and you know whether you've got to... You know, go all inside out and chase your tail to try and figure out what the will of God is. God promises to guide us. When we live in the reverent awe of God, that's his promise to us. He will guide us in the way that he has chosen for us. Not in the way we've chosen, the way he has chosen for us. And the emphasis is not on us finding or unearthing or, or discovering God's will as if it's some treasure hunt to dig up. But the Lord has promised to guide us. And we can let him do that. Even the, the 23rd Psalm, um, the psalm that you know, is often sung at funeral services and those sorts of you know, big occasions, the 23rd Psalm is a psalm all about guidance. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now sometimes God's guidance to us is very, very yeah? He calls us to be people of clean lips. Tells us in Ephesians, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. It's a very clear bit of guidance. That's the way, follow it. There's north, go for it. Don't let your lips be used in any other way. 
very clear. may not be so easy to do, but it's very clear what the guidance is. In other instances, God's guidance is far more indirect, not so easy to discern, as in his sovereignty he works mysteriously and wondrously through other people, through our choices, through situations. And yet when you stop and reflect and look back on your life, you're often very surprised to realise the way that God has gently guided us in the path he has chosen for our lives. In that interview with Agnes today, which of us couldn't be just staggered by how God took her from where she was into a situation where she's a believer and a truster and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know? Looked at her at uni and you would have thought, she's a dead loss. What would God want her for? You know? You know? Students for Satan. Bit hard, isn't it, to sort of think you can have a turnaround like that? You know? My former session clerk at Cherrybrook was, a, was an absolute avowed and card-carrying communist before he came to the Lord Jesus. God has worked in incredible ways in our lives and he's guided us all the way through. There's a, there's a particular little tag, a theological tag, which is called provenient grace. Provenient, not preventing grace. Provenient means the going before grace. That God has been at work in your life even before you've been aware of it. To bring you to that point where the gospel's being shown to you and you've gone, wow. And he has already given you that gift of faith to believe in his son. God's been at work in you even when you're a non-Christian. You know, his guidance is mysterious, but his guidance is clear. It is clear that it is there. In his sovereignty, he has woven us into his eternal plan for the whole world. And part of that plan is for you and I to glorify the Lord Jesus. The Lord's a compass to us. But also, he is to us a God who is all-compassionate. If you've got your Bibles there, I want you to turn up to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Just going to pick some some verses out of this. Verse 8 is where we're going to start. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love okay states it very clearly there verse 11 he says to us for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for those who fear him now psalm 103 probably read many times have you ever picked up the verses about those who fear him for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for those who fear him you know okay Simple little diagram, heaven, earth, north, south, you know. How, how much does God love us? Hey, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Continues on. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Okay? So you've got that dimension happening. You've got heavens, earth, east, west. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Okay? Compassion and fear are being wrapped up together here. Flip your eyes down to verse 17. From everlasting to everlasting is the Lord's... Sorry, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him 
and his righteousness with their children's children. So here you've got another dimension coming in, from everlasting to everlasting. Now, you know, that's a pretty daggy graphic. You know, um, if you're an artist, some of you might be, if you're an artist, think, how would you try to paint, how would you try to capture those three images on canvas? God's love for those who fear him, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How would you, how would you put that down? Our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west. What would that look like in paint? Or his love, his love that extends from, from everlasting to everlasting. How would you put that down? You know, painting's worth a thousand words. What would it look like? Three limitless dimensions, bursting, unable to contain the infinity of God's compassion. His compassion towards those who fear him. And yet I want to put to you that, that this compassion is all summed up in the simple words of verse 3. Where he says there that he forgives all all your sins he forgives all your sins you know we so often say that sort of statement Jeff said it last week time and again when we sat down together to the Lord's Supper that Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins that is the active compassion of God at work in your life that he forgives all your sins. Don't let it become a mantra. Let it soak into your soul like rain on a parched ground. God is good. And here he is in action, freely, so completely clearing our debt, yet only because Christ has paid that penalty. And let's be perfectly clear here. The Old Testament and the New Testament, it's a package deal. You know, there's, there's no promise that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west by claiming the compassion of God, by, by pleading for his love, unless at the very epicentre of this divine forgiving compassion is the death of Jesus on Calvary's tree. Romans 8 verse 5, it reminds us so strongly that God has demonstrated his love, his compassion, if you like, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, we've sketched the blessings, his provision, his protection, compass, compassion for those who fear him. But I want to also be crystal about this point, that whilst those blessings are promised to those who fear him, the blessings do not come to us because we fear the Lord. They only come to us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fearing God must not be made into some sort of new work that somehow earns us salvation or earns us the blessings and the benefits of salvation. Provision, protection, compass, compassion are only ours as we are in Christ. They're only ours as we are clothed with his righteousness. At best, our fear of the Lord is always going to be imperfect. It's going to be inadequate. It's going to be imbalanced. It's, we're going to be incompetent at it. For the only one who fully delights in the fear of the Lord 
is the true man, Jesus our Saviour. Now, Isaiah chapter 11, it talks to us there about a prophecy about Jesus. And it says this about him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and power. The spirit of knowledge. And of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It's all about Jesus. And it's that last phrase that strangely warms my soul. And he, that is Jesus, the one to come to earth, the God-man. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. That attracts me. It attracts me to learn and to know and to, and to want to experience more and more of what the fear of the Lord is. For Jesus was given not only the spirit of counsel and wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, he was also given the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord. If Jesus, the Son of Eternity, delights in this fear, rejoices in this fear, enjoys, relishes, takes pleasure in this fear of the Lord, then it is indeed a precious spiritual reality, a gem that is to nourish and satisfy. I, by a child of adoption, a child of God by what Jesus has done, I want to know, I want to learn to delight more in this fear of the Lord. If I want to grow to be more like Jesus and Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord, then I'm to grow in that as he did and to understand it, to grow in the fear of the Lord that is not terror but that reverent awe of consciously living my life in the humbling presence of the majesty who created the whole universe. Is he quite safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He is our king. Let's pray. Our Father, it is very difficult for our finite minds to, to grasp that you are a consuming fire, to grasp your, your righteous wrath against sin, to grasp the punishment that you poured out on your own son in order that we might be forgiven to grasp the, the height and the length and the depth and the breadth of your, your compassion towards us as we bear your image and as we'd stuffed up that image so much. It's difficult for us to, to hold that and to hold the fact, our Lord, that, that you now call us your sons and daughters, that you've poured out your love upon us, you lavished your love upon us in such a way that that we will share eternity with you face to face. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you, our Father, that, that we are the recipients. We just want to bask in that. Help us, our Father, to live our lives before you in humility, 
but also in boldness to follow you, to obey you, to put your word into practice. Not just being hearers of your word, but doers, so that we might indeed declare your truth in our words and in our lives in a way which commends you to those who watch. Father, we thank you. Amen.